Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor and a psychologist share their research into how light impacts our wellness and productivity. I would say given our data, it does seem that daylight makes a difference, definitely makes people have a better sense of well-being, balance, and harmony. A pulmonologist goes over the inflammatory disease sarcoidosis. The diagnosis of sarcoidosis can be complex and challenging. The symptoms can suggest sarcoidosis, but there are so many other conditions which can cause same type of finding on x-ray and the biopsy. And a registered dietitian talks about how to eat during cancer treatment. There's no one specific food or supplement that's magic. But the more naturally colorful your meal is, the more likely it's to have an abundance of cancer-fighting nutrients. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a pulmonologist will teach us about sarcoidosis. Then, a registered dietitian talks about eating during cancer treatment. But first, a doctor and psychologist share their research on the impact of light on wellness and productivity. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Does lighting have an impact on wellness and productivity? My guests today have recently completed a study on that subject. Dr. Usha Satish is a psychologist and professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate. Dr. Koshal Nanavati is a family practitioner and the assistant dean of wellness at Upstate. Thank you for being here, both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Dr. Satish, why don't you begin by telling us about the study you did that compared people working near a sunlit window with those working near a window darkened by blinds? Sure. This study was called the Evolve Study, and it was conducted in North Carolina in a typical office setting. The participants were professionals working in different managerial positions, and we used a well-validated methodology called the strategic management simulations to study productivity levels in participants. And this technology um, really revolves around real-world productivity, answering questions for people, such as, how is my day going today? Am I managing information well? Am I completing my day-to-day -day tasks? Am I able to focus? Am I succeeding in my overall mission? Um, so a lot of things that are very critical to information management and processing, and these are linked to human factors. And so that's sort of what we were looking at. And what did you find? Sure. So we were really interested in understanding the impact of daylight on people's productivity level and sleep quality. And we were especially focusing on different aspects of metacognition and impact on productivity. And so these would have included things such as information management, focus, capacity to prioritize, et cetera. And what we did is we took these people into these two conditions, one with daylight and one with blinds, and looked at the results on productivity, which were pretty impressive. On average, people had about 42% higher scores across all these critical parameters. And this is important both at a personal level, and it also has significant impacts on overall organizational performance. After that initial study, Dr. Satish, you and Dr. Nanavati did another study of healthcare workers here at Upstate, again comparing work near sunlit windows to work near windows with blinds. What did you find there? So in this pilot study, we actually focused on productivity levels and factors and healthcare professionals. So we used the same methodology, but a version that is specific to healthcare. And some of the key findings related to statistically significant increases in positive outcomes for patient uh, care in this simulated um, methodology. 
And there were also reductions in negative outcomes related to related to patient care. And we also looked at how people managed information and um, their interpersonal communication. And in the delight condition, they actually did better in all these factors. For example, facilitation and cooperation had showed significant improvements under daylight. Their negative outcomes went down and positive outcomes went up. So overall, in this pilot study, it appears as uh, appears that good daylight definitely enables better outcomes. Dr. Nanavati, why does this matter so much, particularly in the healthcare workers? I mean, I think when you think about the fact that what healthcare workers are doing every day is impacting other people's lives as well, even more so, you know, it's a service industry as are many other industries and environment makes a difference, right? Go figure. It's a very simple statement I make, but the environment is multiple things. It's the food you eat, it's the location where you are, uh, it's how you feel and how your surroundings make you feel. And so what this data teases out is the fact that at least in a pilot study, we're able to see that the value of having daylight uh, and a brighter environment in general allows people to actually engage more with their work, to feel more connected with the environment. Uh, and so these terms like emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, terms that are used really are about simply that. One is having a sense of you know, connection and, and value and not feeling hopeless about the situation. Uh, and then the other is feeling connected to your work and your space and the people you're with and the mission. Uh, and in healthcare, especially with this last year and the stresses that, you know, we've endured as a world, uh, it's important. Uh, you think about offering your patients and your customers in the, in the other industries a five-star experience. But, you know, the point that you start to realize is that, you know, we're all worth a five-star experience. And we get to create the environment. And so as leadership, we should think about that. And also as employees in the environment, we should think about those things. Well, let me ask you, in a place like Syracuse, where we have a lot of cloudy days, is there value to being near a window, even if the daylight isn't bright and sunny? I think that is absolutely important. And, you know, we are all moving towards clean energy, sustainability, improving overall health and well-being. And studies such as ours, as well as others, shed really important light on the future of buildings and architectural design. In this particular case, I would say, given our data, it does seem that daylight makes a difference, brightness makes a difference, and definitely makes people have a better sense of well-being, balance, and harmony. So I would say yes. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with psychologist Dr. Usha Satish and Assistant Dean of Wellness, Dr. Koshal Nanavati, about a study they recently completed assessing the impact of lighting on wellness and productivity. Let's talk more about the value of daylight. Dr. Nanavati, are you confident that exposure to sunlight will help with an individual's wellness and mood? And do you think it will help even if a person is resistant or disbelieving? So I think it's a, a beliefs matter, first of all. Uh, and that being said, for most people, we know that daylight, uh, sun, sunlight, sun exposure have value. Uh, that being said, your environment where you are matters. Uh, there are certain health conditions that do limit a person's ability to get too much daylight and sun exposure. So I definitely have to say, you know, give that qualifier. But that being said, for most of us, you know, what we view, our view actually makes a big difference to how we feel. Uh, and being in an environment that has more brightness has an impact that actually is, isn't just on the surface, but it's an impact that affects your thinking, uh, your ability to relate in the environment, your mood, your ability to concentrate, focus, uh, and your attention. And all of these things ultimately not only improve productivity, but what they do is improve your experience in that time frame. So that's the value that you can get.
What could the results of research like this mean for business? Dr. Satish, you talk about daylight exposure leading to better productivity, innovation, and collaboration, things that almost every company would want more of. So do you think this would lead to a rising interest in new buildings that contain many windows and a rearrangement of workspaces to allow for more natural light? And I think a lot of this is already happening. Um, there has been such a strong movement towards sustainable um, growth, clean energy, and the focus on human well-being has also increased. And given that well-being and productivity are tied, this is a good thing for individuals and for the organization. So I do believe that this is going to definitely have an impact and more people are going to speak about this. And while in healthcare, it has direct impacts on patients and, and healthcare providers, there's definitely a lot to lot of other office spaces all over the world uh, that are looking at improving their overall work environment. Dr. Nanavati, what do results like these mean for rates of employee burnout? Something like burnout is multifactorial. Uh, and the other day I was talking to my students about the fact that it's sort of like, you know, where you are now is like the trunk of a tree, but we've all come from different places like the roots. And so the roots of burnout for different people mean different things. But this kind of data at least gives credence to the fact that one of the factors that impacts burnout, which ties into the environment that a person is in, uh, can definitely be influenced and lead to positive consequences uh, for a person. Then obviously it's, you know, the attitudes, the team building, uh, leadership styles, and, uh, you know, meaningful action. Those are the other components. But in terms of environment, this kind of data can help in structural design, in structural engineering, in creating office environments, like you were saying, where there's more brightness in general and uh, lighting uh, can be affected as well. And I also, I think if I might just add, um, there are, based on this methodology that we used, uh, there are possibilities to predict uh, retention rates and burnout rates as well. So again, if we do larger studies and find similar data, it would certainly give us some signals on um, burnout, potential burnout rates and retention rates as well. Before we wrap up, Dr. Satish, can you explain metacognition and your work with decision makers? How can someone learn to focus on the process of thinking rather than the content? So that's a very interesting question. So we need both. Content is certainly important and very formative. It's the knowledge that we have and lean and continue to use. It's our, sort of our database. And the process is how we use this content to shape our lives. And while the content and context of our decision, our decisions change over a lifetime, we bring the same process of decision making. In other words, our metacognition stays relatively the same unless we pay attention to it. And so that's why um, I focus a lot on working with these components of metacognition and helping people improve this so that they then make better decisions. Well, are people better able to focus on the process of thinking when they're in natural light? Based on the data so far in our studies, it does seem to show that several areas of metacognition, which would include uh, things like Dr. Nanavati has spoken about, such as focus, concentration, um, as well as information management skills, even use of simple stra strategic thinking, all that seems to be much better when the lighting conditions are better. Again, in healthcare, our data is pilot, but um, the, we, we certainly are seeing very strong results. Let me ask both of you, do you foresee additional research to be done on lighting, something that would build on what you've already learned? Dr. Nanavati? Absolutely. I think there are so many domains yet to explore. Uh, and when we talk about lighting, uh, that's a part of it. Then you talk about things like lighting and thermal regulation, and that's a whole different thing because, you know, one of the things we found is if somebody is in sunlight for too long, uh, some people may get irritated or uncomfortable with that. And so in office spaces and environments, the idea that you can get 
better lighting and have improved thermal regulation creates an ambiance that's much more conducive to sustenance in that space for a longer time. And Dr. Satish, are you um, exploring anything else in this area? I think we would like to do more work um, with the healthcare sector because I think these results were very powerful. And if you can actually improve uh, functioning such that it improves patient outcomes, uh, this, that's definitely a, a big story there. So I would like to study um, more in the healthcare sector. And the other um, aspect that I have not actually worked on personally is of the domain of seasonal affective disorders and to see, um, you know, what kind of lighting might actually work for these people. And while there are, there's plenty of studies with the kinds of lighting um, on how they feel, there's no, there's, there's not a lot of research on their metacognitive productivity and those aspects, which is what we um, study here at Upstate. I appreciate you both taking the time to discuss the results of your research. Thank you to psychologist Dr. Usha Satish and Assistant Dean of Wellness Dr. Koshal Nanavati. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about sarcoidosis. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. People with the inflammatory disease known as sarcoidosis need an experienced doctor overseeing their care. And today I'm talking with someone who will explain why that is so important. Dr. Barindra Saw is a pulmonologist and associate professor of medicine at Upstate and also the director of the sarcoidosis program. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Saw. Well, thank you, Amber. Thank you for having me again. Now, sarcoidosis is described as an inflammatory disease. What does that mean? Yes, Amber, that means the inflammatory disease is a type of disease in which the immune system attacks the body's own tissue, resulting into inflammation. So would it be, an, could you also call it an autoimmune disease as well? It's not exactly autoimmune disorder, but it's called, I can, I will explain again later, it's the overactive immune system. I see. Well, what are the typical symptoms? Symptoms of sarcoidosis depend on what organs are affected. Lungs are the most commonly affected organ. That is why the patient typically presents with cough, shortness of breath, and chest pain. Patients may present with fatigue, joint pain, skin rashes, abnormal vision, heart and brain problems if other organs are involved. So it really could affect anywhere in the body. Yeah. It sounds exactly. like. Do we know what causes sarcoidosis? In spite of... Uh, uh, several researches, uh, you know, medical researches, we have not been able to exactly pinpoint the exact causes of sarcoidosis yet. Uh, however, uh, it has been found to be associated with exposure to mold, mildew, uh, employment in agriculture, and pesticides using industries. Uh, the, the cluster of sarcoidosis have been found uh, in uh, people with, uh, in sheep workers, a fire worker and the, uh, the people involved in 9-11 attack, you know, they were exposed to all the smoke. So sarcoidosis has been found to be uh, more prevalent in this group of patients. Does it run in families? Uh, not 100% but uh, the first degree and second degree relatives of uh, uh, patients who had sarcoidosis have increased risk of sarcoidosis, about uh, four to 9% increased risk. So by first degree, second degree, that would be a parent. Exactly, parents and siblings. How do most people learn that they have sarcoidosis? So <clears throat> half of the patients can be asymptomatic and half of the patients can present with symptoms. Uh, the patients who have no symptoms, their sarcoidosis is incidentally discovered on the chest X-ray done, you know, sometime during physical exam, or they go to hospital for some other reason, they get a chest X-ray CT scan, 
and uh, there is uh, radiographic abnormalities. And when we uh, biopsy that kind of lesion, uh, that turns out to be sarcoidosis, but patient may not have any symptoms. And half of the patients present with the symptoms I explained above. So, someone might, you know, have troubling symptoms and be, have it diagnosed that way, and someone might have it just as a total surprise when they go yep. for something else. Um, exactly. If it's suspected, you mentioned di um, a biopsy. If it's a suspected sarcoidosis, does it have to have a biopsy to prove it? Yeah, exactly. The diagnosis of sarcoidosis can be complex and challenging, you know. The symptoms can suggest sarcoidosis, but there are so many other conditions which can cause same type of finding on uh, X-ray and the biopsy. So diagnosis is usually confirmed by biopsy of the affected organs and ruling out other causes of uh, the inflammation which is seen in sarcoidosis. Uh, however, the you know some of the vital organs like uh, heart, eye, brain, biopsy may not be that easy. In that case. We try to look for other organ sites which can be easily biopsied. So I want to ask you about how it's treated, but you we, we you mentioned the the body's immune system is in overdrive, I guess, during this disease. Yeah, it's kind of uh, been an overactive immune system which is causing inflammation. So the treatment of sarcoidosis is done with a steroid and other immunosuppressive drugs. However, you know. Not everyone who gets diagnosed with sarcoidosis needs to be treated. The reason is that medication used to treat sarcoidosis have several side effects. And as I mentioned before, about 50% of the patients with sarcoidosis are asymptomatic at the time of diagnosis and resolve spontaneously over the next two to three years without treatment. That is why after the diagnosis of sarcoidosis is confirmed, to make decision about whether to treat or not, we perform detailed assessment of patients we perform tests like breathing tests, blood tests, uh, also assess the patient for other organ involvement by sarcoid, like skin sarcoid, eye sarcoid, uh, sarcoid in heart and brain by inquiring, uh, you know, the organ-related symptoms. And uh, uh, if we suspect other organs might be affected, we do further testing. Uh, so this, you know, the before we decide to treat, we need the patient needs thorough evaluation, you know, to decide how severe their symptoms are, where other organs are affected. Once we decide to start treatment, uh, we start treatment uh, with medication uh, um, for the patient who have symptoms. And uh, those patients need close monitoring, to, you know, to monitor the side effects. The patient who do not need treatment, like, you know, who are asymptomatic, those patients, we don't just leave them alone, you know, those patients need close follow-up to make sure, you know, they are not getting worse. And the follow-up is with, uh, you know, serial breathing test, blood test, and, you know, the symptoms, and if we found uh, down the road, if the symptoms are worsening, those patients also need treatment. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with pulmonologist Barendra Saw. He's the director of the sarcoidosis program at Upstate. Now, why do you say that people who have sarcoidosis ought to find a doctor with expertise in this disease? And there are quite few reasons for that. The first one is. As I mentioned before, making diagnosis of sarcoidosis and making decision about its treatment can be very complex and challenging. Let me give you a quick example. Recently, uh, I saw a patient, you know, that patient was referred to me to start the treatment of sarcoidosis. The diagnosis was already made at outside hospital. Patient had uh, symptoms for almost a year and had a several, you know, CT scan done, testing done, the biopsy done. And uh, when the patient came to me uh, and I reviewed patient chart and symptoms, uh, the symptoms and the findings on the CT scan didn't look typical of sarcoidosis. So I thought, oh, maybe something is else going on. And I, I, I ordered more tests to see, oh, if, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, the inflammation in sarcoidosis can be caused by so many other reasons. So I ordered more tests to see if other diseases can be there. And it turns out to be tuberculosis. So, you know, that patient's uh, diagnosis changed. Treatment of tuberculosis is antibiotics, and treatment of sarcoidosis is immunosuppressive. So, uh, diagnosis and you know making a decision about treatment can be challenging. So that's the one reason. Second reason is that uh, sarcoidosis can affect multiple organs in one patient, and uh, the patient with multiple organ involvement may have to see different specialists. 
over the years, you know, I have been treating sarcoid patients for almost nine, 10 years, but I have observed that when a patient has to go to different specialists and they get different advices and explanation, and I have seen sometimes they get confused and frustrated with the different recommendations, uh, different explanation about their treatment. Um, and uh, that's the reason, you know, I think they should uh, uh, see a sarcoid expert. Uh, having sarcoid expert can be helpful uh, for those kind of patients. When the patient, I have many patients with multiple organ involvement, and I take in charge of that patient's sarcoidosis care, and I coordinate his or uh, her care between different specialists. So it's a complicated disease, and it sounds like it can be a difficult diagnosis sometimes. I'm really glad the woman who was told she had sarcoidosis, but who really had tuberculosis, came to see you because the treatments are so different. And you already mentioned how some of the medications for sarcoidosis have some potentially serious side effects. Now, in terms of the kind of doctor who would specialize in sarcoidosis, I know you're a pulmonologist who specializes in the lungs, and that, I guess, makes sense because most people with sarcoidosis have some lung involvement? Yes, uh, most of the patients, as most of the patients have lung, uh, lung involvement, the pulmonary doctor have uh, more experience in treating sarcoidosis. Uh, but uh, other, uh, other specialists, like arthritis, we call rheumatologists, uh, some other specialists uh, like skin doctor, eye doctor, uh, brain doctor, uh, cardiologist with a special interest. Some of them are, you know, they treat all type of uh, uh, those organ problems, but the, some doctors, those kind of doctors with a special interest in sarcoid can also treat, uh, you know, the organ-related sarcoidosis. So if a patient has you as their physician and they and they have sarcoid, you may have to set up uh, appointments for them with a dermatologist or a rheumatologist or a cardiologist, depending on what is happening with their disease, it sounds like. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Now, how common is it for someone to have lung sarcoidosis, say, and it resolves with treatment, but then years later, how common is it for sarcoid to return either in the lungs or somewhere else. Do you see that often? Yeah, you know, about 90% uh, of the patients uh, have sarcoidosis in the lungs. And uh, uh, it can resolve with, uh, with, with or without treatment in almost two-thirds of the patients. About 30% uh, of the patients develop chronic sarcoidosis. After it resolves, it can come back in some organs or different organs uh, in about 5% of the patients. So. It's not, you know, the relapse of sarcoidosis is not very common. And if it does come, it can come in the same organ or different organ. Now, sarcoidosis is a disease that I think a lot of people have probably not even heard of. So if someone gets this diagnosis, I imagine, you know, they can feel pretty alone. So tell us what you're doing through the sarcoidosis program at Upstate. Very good question. Yeah. So. You know, the social support is very important for the sarcoidosis patients. And uh, I'm gonna, uh, what I'm doing here is, uh, you know, this is the perfect timing, you know, as you know, April is Sarcoidosis Awareness Month. And to celebrate this, we just launched a local sarcoidosis support group led by a couple of my patients. The first online meeting is on April 22nd at 6 p.m. Uh, it will be virtual through Zoom and, uh, we also just started Upstate Multidisciplinary Sarcoidosis Program, which consists of doctors from different specialists like lung, heart, eye, skin, brain, kidney, and liver. That website will have name of all these um, doctors uh, listed on it with uh, their practice location and phone number, so that you know patient can you know can find out you know who who is the cardiologist who have interest in sarcoidosis, who is the eye doctor. Who is you know who who is who has more experience in treating uh, eye sarcoidosis? So I think this will be very helpful for the patient, and also uh, talking to the patient who has uh, you know who has sarcoidosis, how they feel, what they have experienced. Uh, the patient support group uh, will help in that case. I think that will provide uh, you know tremendous amount of uh, help to the patients. 
So you have a new support group that some of your patients started. I'd like to let listeners know how to learn more about that first virtual meeting at 6 p.m. April 22nd. People can connect through the sarcoidosis support group of CNY on Facebook. And there's also an email in case people want to learn more about the support group. That email is sarcocentralny at gmail.com. That's S-A-C-R-O-C-E-N-T-R-A-L-N-Y at gmail.com. Do you think there's benefit from patients knowing other people who have the same disease? Is that the reason behind having a support group? Yeah, I think talking to the, uh, you know, talking to the people uh, who have uh, sarcoidosis uh, and the learning, the, you know, it, uh, the getting their experience can be very helpful in, you know, how they, how they, how they feel uh, about the sarcoidosis. Now, aside from carefully taking prescription medication, if if needed, what, what sorts of lifestyle things do you recommend to your patients? Um, you know, as with other illness, the healthy lifestyles that include consuming healthy diet, which consists of more fruits, vegetables, less fat and carb, uh, and they should also do regular exercise. Well, I know many people with sarcoidosis don't necessarily have symptoms. We talked about how a, a lot of people don't have any of the symptoms at all. But for people who do have a chronic case of sarcoidosis, tell us what they typically experience. What is life typically like? Yeah, you know, life can be very, you know, stressful. Uh, other than the other than experiencing disease-related symptoms, they may also experience chronic fatigue, anxiety, depression. And uh, uh, that chronic illness can put significant Im impact on quality of life and function. So that's the uh, another reason, you know, uh, staying active, meeting with the, you know, uh, uh, participating uh, social support group uh, might help with that. Well, this has been very informative. I want to remind listeners they can connect on Facebook through the Sarcoidosis Support Group of CNY. There's also an email in case people want to learn more about the support group. That email is sarcocentralny at gmail.com. That's S-A-R-C-O-C-E-N-T-R-A-L-N-Y at gmail.com. Thank you to Dr. Barindra Saw. He's the pulmonologist who leads the Sarcoidosis Program at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Solutions to common dietary challenges during cancer treatment, next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you're in treatment for cancer, good nutrition becomes even more important. It can help you maintain your strength and your weight, and it can help you better handle your treatments. With me to talk about nutrition and cancer is Katie Krofcheck. She's the registered dietitian at the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome to HealthLink on Air. Hi, Amber. Thank you for having me. Well, now, how might someone's overall nutritional needs shift during cancer treatment? Let's talk about protein, fats, and carbohydrates. Metabolic alterations may result in higher energy needs, so more caloric demands um, during treatment. If the body doesn't have enough calories, it pulls nutrients from muscle mass. So sufficient calories from all macronutrients, meaning carbs, proteins, and fats, are very important. So specifically, carbohydrates in the form of whole grains, fruit, vegetables will offer more phytonutrients than your processed carbs, your white flour foods. Um, but fats will have more calories per gram, so your monounsaturated sources are healthier ones include olive oil, seeds, nuts, avocado. Um, and then your lean protein sources uh, include eggs, dairy, nuts, fish, poultry, and beans, instead of your pork or beef would be your better options. Now, what about water? Is, is cancer treatment dehydrating? 
Yes, water is definitely key and staying hydrated can also help with your nausea, fatigue, taste changes and dry mouth. So lots of symptoms. Um, it, water does the body good for sure. Many important, many um, chemotherapy drugs do really tax the kidneys. So drinking enough is very important. Are there vitamins or minerals that become more important during treatment for people? There's no one specific food or supplement that's magic for curing or any specific cancer diagnosis. But the more naturally colorful your meal is, the more likely it's to have an abundance of cancer-fighting nutrients. And the pigments that give fruits and vegetables color represent a variety of protective or immune boosting compounds. So more than just green veggies, you should look for parrots yes. or beets or other colors. Yeah, think of the whole rainbow. If you, your plate, your full day's worth um, or even week's worth is colorful, that's a good thing. Now, what if someone is trying to lose weight and they're following a diet when they're diagnosed, is it is it generally recommended not to be dieting during cancer treatment? Yes, it, it depends on the patient and the diagnosis, but typically avoiding intentional weight loss during chemo and radiation is advised, so avoiding. And then um, treatment side effects often impede oral intake and result in weight loss on their own. So I advise patients to follow a healthy, balanced diet as possible. And then after treatment, after the recovery phase, I'm available for nutrition counseling if weight loss is necessary at that time. I see. Now, I know that cancer and side effects from treatment affect everyone differently, but there are some common problems that I wanted to ask you about as a, as a dietitian. Some people at a time when they, you know, they need to eat, they just don't have an appetite or they feel full all the time and they, or they don't want to eat. So what advice do you have for, for someone in that situation? Yes, it is very common to have a poor appetite during treatment, um, especially, you know, patients have a lot going on regardless of even the type of treatment they're getting. Um, so eating is not always their first priority. And inflammatory hormones released during cancer may affect hunger signals to the brain causing loss of appetite. So eating can become more of a chore for patients with cancer. So I explained to him that nutrition is another modality of treatment. Um, they have to eat for fuel instead of just pleasure. So one way to help manage lack of appetite is to eat on a schedule or by the clock. Um, and if eating around the same time every day can help the stomach be ready for food. Um, so setting an alarm as a reminder is helpful because that hunger cue is not necessarily there. So going by the clock will help to avoid missing a meal or snack that's much needed. Do you have some suggestions for foods? What, what are the most nutritionally packed foods that you can recommend so that someone can get the most nutrition in the fewest number of bites? So along with that, foods that are better tolerated when nauseous, tired, uh, or when taste is altered, um, good choices are eggs, peanut butter, um, crackers, cheese or yogurt, trail mix. And these are some examples of simple foods that are both calorie and protein dense. And they're also quick and easy to prepare or grab. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with registered dietitian Katie Krofchak from the Upstate Cancer Center. What do you say to patients who complain about the change in the way the food tastes? Altered taste is definitely not a symptom that helps with appetite during or after cancer treatment. Um, there are a number of dietary tactics to help manage taste changes, such as oral rinses, using marinades, other specific food ingredients to add to a, uh, a dish, depending on the perceived flavor. Um, but it does depend on the type of cancer and the modalities used for treatment. For example, a patient with head and neck cancer who's receiving radiation might not get their, their taste back for six to nine months. Um, so it is okay to um, add in different seasonings or even sugars like honey or maple syrup um, or salt. 
those are just a few ingredients when things taste bitter or spicy that can help. So um, if a patient has to choose between adding salt to their food a, as an alternative to avoiding food, then that's the best choice. And like you say, it, it it generally is temporary. I mean, it may be months, it may be weeks, or it may be months, but it generally, the taste does come back eventually. Yeah, so again, for the head and neck um, diagnoses, it does take more time than um, other diagnoses where they're not getting treatment up here um, at their mouth site. But yes, we hope that taste comes back as best as possible. Are there tips for how to eat when someone's nauseous? Yeah, so in addition to a good medication regimen, there are other tactics um, food-wise. So things such as um, sipping cold, clear liquids to stay hydrated, choosing mild foods like crackers and toast or bland foods like chicken noodles and pudding, um, avoiding greasy foods or foods with very strong smells, and eating cold or room temperature is definitely uh, more accepted than hot entrees that give off an odor. What about if someone has mouth sores? Are there foods or strategies for dealing with mouth sores? Because I, I, that's a side effect of some of the treatments, right? Right. Yeah. It's important to avoid citrus foods if you have sores um, and beverages um, such as berries, pineapple, as well as crunchy foods, spicy and fried foods. So more soothing choices would be um, honey, milk, cheese, yogurt, beans, and eggs. Does a straw help if you're trying to drink something? Is it easier? It can help with hydration and the swallow reflux, reflux at times. Let me ask you about intestinal issues. For someone who's constipated, what advice do you have about how to eat or what to eat? Water is always key, as well as foods that are high in insoluble fibers are very beneficial. So such as um, wheat bran, um, ground flaxseed, apples with their skin, and bananas. So what are your favorite high fiber foods? Um, I like to add... Um, and what I suggest to patients is ground flaxseed to Greek yogurt. It alters the flavor and texture a little bit and helps get in that extra little bit of fiber for the day. So is flaxseed considered a fiber supplement and, and are supplements an adequate way of getting your fiber? Um, ground flaxseed is, is a good source of fiber. Yes, it's an easy thing to kind of add into foods you may be already eating. Are there beverages that you recommend for someone who's who's constipated? Water is always the best choice, especially hot water for constipation, um, or even six to eight ounces of like a low sugar, 100% fruit juice, and always prune juice are good choices as well. What do you suggest for someone struggling with diarrhea? Are there foods that should be avoided that only make it worse? Diarrhea can be very debilitating for patients. Um, there's quite a number of things to address with diet and diarrhea, in addition to possible medication management. Some advice is to avoid greasy foods, caffeine, spices, artificial sugars, and raw fruit and vegetables. So just avoid those in, in totality. Yes. Let me ask you, for someone who's newly diagnosed with, with cancer, how would you stock that person's kitchen? What are some staples that you think would be important just to have, you know, maybe they aren't going to need it. Maybe they won't have mouth sores or constipation, but what are, what are some of the things that you would um, want to make sure that person has handy? Keep it simple. Um, it, simple, uh, such as like granola bars, your yogurt, eggs, uh, any type of noodle, um, Throwing some butter on there. It doesn't have to be a red sauce. Um, soups, cereals, hot cereals as well, oatmeal and cream of wheat. Easy things that are, you know, you want it on your shelf so that you have a, a variety because your appetite's not there. You don't want to see the same thing every day and just avoid it. Um, so having a couple of cereals, okay, I can go with, you know, this one today. It's different from yesterday. 
We've talked a lot about the importance of, you know, finding nutritional foods and getting good nutrition, but this is the time when people may crave, you know, comfort food um, that maybe isn't the most healthy. Is there, is there room for that? There is, yep. Um, you know, we want our diets to be as balanced and healthy as possible, but again, you've got a lot of metabolic demands going on. So if you need, you know, that sweet fix or something to help you meet those calorie demands, that can fit, you know, there, and there's other nutrients in say cookies and ice cream, such as, you know, your calcium, your vitamin D, your protein, and ice cream is even a liquid that can help hydrate you. I say, go for it. Can you let me know how does um, someone at the Upstate Cancer Center connect with you? I am available for all patients. All I need is for the doctor to put in a referral to me so that I know that they exist and they're here in the building. Um, so it, any patient can ask for a referral if it's not offered to them by their physician. Um, and then I'm available either in person. I see patients on all floors um, of the cancer center. And I also do telemed appointments. If they you know, don't want to leave their home, that's fine by me. Well, this has been very encouraging to hear and very informative. Thank you to Katie Krofchak. She's the registered dietitian at the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Nancy Geyer is a writer from Washington, D.C., whose work has appeared in the Georgia Review, the Iowa Review, and New England Review. She sent us a poignant essay about caring for a parent who is experiencing cognitive decline. Here is her essay, Heathens for the Day, which reminds us how illness spreads suffering throughout a family. When I arrive at his house with a suitcase, my father leads me upstairs to Elle's bedroom and says, I trust this will be satisfactory? He sometimes speaks in such formalities, jokester that he can be, but these days I'm not sure what's what. Is he playing the proprietor of a rooming house because he needs time to figure out which daughter I am? Should I pretend it's only a joke and act the paying guest? Elle, my half-sister, and 29 years my junior, is away at college. It's late in the evening, so I read for a while in her bed, then turn off her bedside lamp. There are glow-in-the-dark stars on her ceiling, as there were on mine long ago. I can't discern any familiar constellations, though. Maybe Elle, unlike me, attempted to arrange the stars herself, our father sensing even then that he was not up to the task. Or maybe what's up there is accurate, a part of the sky I don't know. In the morning when I go downstairs, my father looks befuddled by my presence. I don't want to risk offending him by stating who I am, so I casually ask if he's brought in the newspaper. He looks in his study, where there's a note on a whiteboard to remind him that his wife is away, and concludes that he hasn't. After opening the front door and peeking out, he puts on his raincoat and unfurls an umbrella to fetch the paper from the far end of the front walk. You think they could have tossed the paper a little closer to the door, I say, when he returns dripping. My words are met with silence. After I shower and dress, my father, who now sleeps on the first floor, comes upstairs and calls out, Hello! I go out into the hallway to let him know that he and I are the only ones at home. He's changed into a jacket and bow tie. Oh no, he thinks we're going to church. The newspaper must have reminded him. He relies on it as a calendar, somehow remembering to drop it into the recycling bin each night. But I'm not sure how to get to his church. I doubt he even goes anymore. I fear that my father, a retired professor and Methodist minister, will tell me they're expecting him, that he must take his place in the choir. But instead, he says brightly, So, we're going to be heathens today? Thank God. Yes, I say, we're going to be heathens today. 
I ask him if he's had breakfast, and he says he can't remember. So I make toast, and he sprinkles it with cinnamon sugar. When we finished eating, he clears our dishes from the table and washes them. He never did these tasks while I was growing up. Perhaps running water and a plate in his hands give him a purchase on the here and now. An hour or so later, I remind my father that he wanted to shave. He goes upstairs to the master bathroom. I wait a few minutes and then go up to see if he's found his razor and shaving cream. I wasn't looking for them, he replies, clearly annoyed. Stubble agitates him, makes him imagine a full beard. So I gently tell him again that he had told me he wanted to shave. Silence. Later, back downstairs, when I ask him if he'd shaved, he feels about his face and says with obvious satisfaction, Why, yes, I did. This is how the rest of the morning goes, and then the afternoon, each of us feeling our way. For dinner, I take the easy way out and order in Chinese food, my father's favorite. He begins his meal by unwrapping and cracking open his cookie. A child might do this, reach for the cookie first, but my father's main interest seems to be his fortune. You can have anything you want if you want it desperately enough, he reads aloud. That's not very helpful, I say. No, it isn't, he responds. We eat the main course, and then he picks up the fortune again, as if for the first time. Not true, he finally says. But before that sour thought has a chance to hang around, an ice cream truck goes by to the tune of Old MacDonald Had a Farm. My father leaves his chair and rushes to the piano to accompany the truck as long as it lingers in the neighborhood, which is for quite a while. He plays and plays, and we sing and sing, our song stuck on repeat. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, learn about a new vector biocontainment lab at Upstate. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.